So Merry Christmas to all you today. Are you all done with your shopping? Who, who's all finished up? Everybody finished up? Who still has some shopping to do today? Good, that's my people, all right. Yeah, wait until it's almost too late and then let panic motivate you. That's what I like to do too, yeah, good. Honestly, you should probably get out of here. You should go shopping now, you shouldn't. Uh, but I like you. Um, so welcome to week four of Advent. If you have your Bibles, feel free to get them out. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, grab one in Lost and Found, I guess. As you, as you might have picked up, since we lit the, the love candle, we're going to talk about love this morning. Uh, it's love week of Advent. And I had a whole very interesting, deeply intellectual sermon ready to go. And at the last minute, I felt like the Holy Spirit was like, no, we're not going to do that. You're not going to do that at all. Scrap that. Uh, instead... Just tell them how much God loves them. So that's what we're going to do today. <clears throat> and since it's our Christmas gathering, we're going to mix things up a little bit. If you would, I'd like for you to stand with me. And what we're going to do, once we're all standing, is we're going to read Luke 1, 26 through 35 together. And it's going to be on the screen. And we're not going to read it in that like slow, drony, I'm reading out loud voice. Okay? We're going to read it with some Christmas cheer. And we're going to read it faster than you'd expect. Okay? So Luke 1, verse 26, starts like this. Ready? In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her. For you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. And he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. All right. Nicely done. Excellent. You can be seated. So I wonder if you noticed that the entire Trinity gets involved in the story of the Incarnation. So God the Father sends an angelic messenger to announce his favor to Mary. The Holy Spirit supernaturally helps her conceive of a child. And Jesus, her baby, is the Son of God, right? The entire Trinity is right there in the text for us. Now I bring this up because... This is not like an interesting theological tidbit, but it speaks to the heart of Advent. It speaks to the heart of who God is and why Jesus came. So I don't, I don't know about you, but for me, in my, kind of my early years as a Christian, I'm trying to kind of figure stuff out. Growing up in the church, I kind of thought of it as the Trinity as like a puzzle, right? Like I just, need, I just needed to kind of figure out how it worked. If I could just kind of hear the perfect analogy, and there's some great analogies, the apple analogy, the candle analogy. 
If I just heard the right one and figured it out, then I would understand it. I'd feel very smart about myself, and that was the goal. That's not the goal. The Trinity is not just a fact to be known or like a puzzle for us to try to decipher. The point of the Trinity is to understand that at his core, God is love. We see in the Trinity that God exists forever in a loving relationship within the persons of the Trinity himself. And we're never really going to fully understand exactly how that works, but we can know that the Trinity is the picture of God's self-giving love. Cornelius Platinga, author and Christian philosopher, weird name, very smart man, says this. He said, the persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the other at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the other. God's interior life overflows with regard for others. So Dr. Platinga is saying that God is always thinking about others, not himself. God is always sharing. God is always giving. God is always flowing out, even within himself. His love is flowing out. That's what the Trinity is, is about. It's not just like a fact to be understood. It's about knowing at the, at the center of the universe is love, self-giving love. And that might sound kind of like mushy and gushy, right? That love is at the center of the universe. But it's, it's, it's more than that. And, and this is important. Because, see, if there's no God, if we're all just kind of products of natural selection, then what we call love is nothing more than chemicals in your brain. Right? It's just chemistry. Evolutionary biology would say that everything in you is only there because it helped your ancestors survive later. Better. That's the only reason to experience love. Just chemicals in your brain. But I would argue that we know that love is more than that. We know love has meaning. We know that we know that we know it. And one of my favorite examples of this is from the rapper J. J. Cole. J. Cole's an interesting, thoughtful guy. And at one point, he was in a live show, and he stopped everything, and he said this to the crowd. He said, the world is constantly bombarding us with images, telling us what life should be about. It always includes the same things, a lot of money, big house, brand new car, and a wife that's not even genetically possible. <laughs> that's what they tell us we need to be happy, even though the world is set up so that 99% of us can never have, have all that. But we idolize the people who do have all that. We sit and we watch and we think their life looks so perfect. He said, I used to be the person watching saying, look at that, so perfect, must be nice. I'm going to go get it. And then I went and got it. But when I got there, I'm telling you all up close and personal, that stuff, what they told us to go get, it's not what's important. It's not what matters. How do I know? I know because right now there's a man who has a billion dollars and is miserable. But there's a family somewhere else who has nothing he has. Yet somehow, they have more, more joy and happiness in their lives than the rich man will ever have. How is that even possible? Everything we thought we needed, he has, but he's miserable. That family has nothing, but they are happy. What do they have that he doesn't have? And as if it was planned, it wasn't, but, as, it, but if it, as if it was planned, the entire J. Cole audience in unison, when he said, what do they have that he doesn't have, they shouted out together, love. There's something deep in us that knows it's true. It's almost as if we're hardwired in the image of a self-giving, loving creator God. Deep down, we know that love is central in the universe. 
And we would shout it out at the concert. We'd happily shout it out, even if we don't really even know why. Most people can't explain where that comes from, but they know love is real. Love has meaning. Self-giving love is at the center of the universe. And it's at the very heart of Christmas. That's why the whole Trinity gets involved. It's the overflow of the nature of who God is. So just for the rest of our time together, I just want to talk about some of the ways that God demonstrates his love for us. Okay? So the first way that we see God demonstrates his love for us is what we celebrate tomorrow, which is that he entered into our mess to save us. So look at 1 John 4, 7. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. The incarnation is a physical embodiment and extension of the Trinity's self-giving love. So let me give you a a parenting example that kind of helps me feel this a little bit, okay? So when you're parenting kids, especially when you're parenting young kids, like toddlers, infants, preteens, teens, it never really stops, but there's there's this fascinating thing that happens where kids decide for some reason that they don't want their food or their drink in the places it's supposed to be, right? Places like their plate or their cup or their mouths. No, they want their food everywhere. They want their juice on everyone. And over and over and over, parents find themselves cleaning up after their kids' messes. And I'm sure that as a parent, you've never had this thought. And I've never had this thought. I've never thought it once. But we can imagine a grumpy parent somewhere out there at some point might think, you know what, this isn't my mess. I didn't make this mess. It's not my mess, not my responsibility. But here I am cleaning it up again. Okay, so in an infinitely larger way, that's the decision that Jesus made at the incarnation. Our mess wasn't his mess. He didn't make it. It wasn't his problem. And he didn't have to be, it didn't have to be his responsibility. We caused him all kinds of pain, we rebelled, we rejected him, and he chose to come with joy, for the joy set before him, and he stepped into our mess anyway. He entered into the broken reality of life on earth, wrapped, he wrapped his eternal, divine, sinless glory with fading flesh. He took on wrinkles and back pain for love, because love compelled him, because self-giving love is who he is. The first way that he demonstrates his love for us is he entered into our mess to save us. Then secondly, he identifies with us in our humanity. Jesus lives in a way that is totally and completely the opposite of what we would expect. So every fact about it, we're kind of very removed from the culture, but it's a really shocking stuff if you look at it from a first century Jewish perspective. Mary gets pregnant with Jesus. And she's not even married to Joseph. They're betrothed to one another. And that was, a, that was a legal binding agreement in the first century Ju- Judaism. But they hadn't yet consummated their marriage. So this is scandalous. This is about as big a deal as you can get in first century Judaism to have a child out of wedlock. You never live that down. And Jesus is going to have the stigma of being born out of wedlock for the rest of his life. And you see this stigma in certain areas of the gospel. Like, for example, in John 8, Jesus is is talking about his heavenly father, and at one point, 
The Pharisees say, well, where's your father? And what they're sarcastically saying is, how can you go talking about your heavenly father when you don't even know really what, who your earthly father is? Jesus' reputation is tainted from the start. But God intentionally, intentionally comes into the world in circumstances that look scandalously sinful. And his reputation is tainted from the start. And then it just goes downhill from there, right? Jesus throughout his life gets more and more irreligious. Everyone's assuming that this king Messiah will be hanging out with the holy people and he'll be kind of supporting the religious establishment. But Jesus is constantly butting heads with the religious establishment. Instead, he's hanging out with, instead of hanging out with the holy people, he's hanging out with the quote-unquote lowlifes. He's going to parties with tax collectors and prostitutes. And therefore, the religious establishment judges him. They think, look, he's a sinner who parties with other sinners, right? Birds of a feather, of a feather flock together. It's scandalous. Then on the cross, when Jesus comes to the end of his life, he takes on the appearance of a guilty criminal. As he takes our place on the cross, he appears as a judged sinner. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that Jesus became our sin, became our curse, which means he fully identified with us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our curse. He fully identified with us. So the one who is Emmanuel, God with us, is born in circumstances that look scandalous and sinful. He lives in circumstances that appear scandalous and sinful. And he dies in circumstances that appear scandalous and sinful. From beginning to the end, the one who was God with us, even though he's not, appears to be a sinner. Why is that? Because he's in love with sinners and is identifying with sinners. So maybe you were taught, God's so holy that he cannot even look upon you if there's sin in your life. He's disgusted with the sin in your life. But see, the, the Christmas story reveals to us that we follow a God who not only can look at sinners and embrace sinners, but who pursues sinners. He's God with us in the midst of our sin. This is a God who dives... Head first into humanity and identifies fully with us. He experiences poverty, exhaustion, betrayal, grief, temptation, suffering, feeling forsaken by God. Why? Because he loves us. He wants to identify with us. And his self-giving, self-sacrificing love won't stop. And then the third way God has demonstrated his love for us is by the way that he treated us, and he treated people with mercy and compassion. We know that God is merciful because we watch Jesus over and over again, extending mercy to those who are clearly guilty. I'll give you a couple examples of that. In John 8, we see the woman caught in adultery who's thrown at the feet of Jesus while he's teaching one morning. And they say to him, the law of Moses says that we should stone such a woman. What do you say? And the Bible says he bends down and begins to draw on the dirt which is just a cool thing to do, right? Super cool. No one knows what he drew in the dirt, but he draws in the dirt and he says, let the one of, one of you who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he goes back to drawing in the dirt. And the Bible says that from the, from the oldest to the youngest, they begin to drop the rocks and they leave. And he picks up the woman's face and he says, where are your accusers? 
Has no one condemned you? And she says, no, Lord. And he says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And the thing that's so weighty about this story is the fact that she is 100% guilty. She's caught in the act. And Jesus extends mercy in the face of blatant guilt. Love through mercy. You're going to see it over and over and over again. God showing love by extending mercy to those who are clearly guilty. One I like to use because everybody knows it, even if you're not, don't have a church background, is the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man. You got this great story of Zacchaeus, who's honestly about as much of a sleazeball as you can be. Uh, he's a traitor to his people. Zacchaeus climbs up in a tree. Jesus walks up through the crowd to the tree and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. You come down, right? From coming to your house today. That's the song. Zacchaeus comes down. They go to his house. They eat dinner at his house. They talk gospel. They talk reconciliation. And Zacchaeus repents. And not only gives back everything that he had taken, but even beyond what he had taken. And Jesus says, surely salvation has come to this house. So over and over again, in the face of blatant guilt, blatant shame, blatant disregard for the things of God, Jesus' response is love. And we see God's love in his compassion. Some of my favorites are in Luke 17, one of my favorites, where the ten lepers stumble onto Jesus. They kind of talk for a while, and then they leave. And after they leave, Jesus heals all ten of them. Now he knows the percentage of which will be grateful and thankful for his healing. And that percentage is one guy. It's not a percentage. I'm sorry. 10%. 10% come back. I took pre-algebra for three years. But that third year, I got an A. So, so only, But only one guy comes back, falls at the feet of Jesus, and worships him. It doesn't stop him from healing all of them. But here you see Jesus is showing his love for humanity through compassion. A couple more. In Mark 5, a ruler of the synagogue, definitely not a friend of Jesus, would have been hostile towards the message of Jesus Christ, has a 12-year-old daughter who gets sick. And so he sends a runner to Jesus and says, my daughter's really, really sick. And so Jesus goes to his house and he gets there and the little girl has died. And everyone's mourning in the house. So he walks in and says, She's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they mock him. They mock him. Which is a good thing I'm not Jesus. Because I would have gone, you're really going to mock me? There's other people I can heal. We'll see you later. But Jesus clears the house, walks into this little girl's bedroom, sits on the edge of her bed, and Jesus takes this little girl's hand and he says, little girl, rise. Or the translation really is, honey, it's time to get up. Honey, it's time to wake up. And she does. And she sits up and eats. He raises this little girl from the dead. Another one that blows my mind is in John 11, where Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that their little brother Lazarus, Lazarus has gotten really ill and is close to death. And let's, let's read that one. John 11, 1. It says this, Now a man named Lazarus was sick, he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus was now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, The sickness will not end in death, 
No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Mary and Martha are in a tense moment, to say the least, right? Their beloved little brother is on death's doorstep. He's hours from death. They have attempted all other avenues to save their little brother. Now they have decided there's only one answer, and that's a miracle. There's only one miracle worker that they know, and that's Jesus. So they need Jesus to come heal Lazarus. They need Jesus to come save Lazarus' life. So they make a very logical plan. They're going to write a note. They're going to put it in the runner's hand. Jesus is several miles down the road. So they're going to have this runner run down those several miles, hand the note to Jesus. Jesus will read the note. This note will compel Jesus to come down the road several miles and save their little brother's life. Now we are about to discover what Mary and Martha believe about God. When push comes to shove, when it's a matter of life and death, what Mary and Martha really believe about Jesus is about to come to the surface. And they know Jesus better than anyone. So I trust their opinion. Because keep in mind, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are the closest natural family to Jesus on the planet other than his literal family. The second to last week of his life is spent exclusively with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, have you ever read the Bible and anticipated what you know it's going to say? Do you ever do that? I do that all the time. I've read the Bible a few times. So I remember a couple years ago, I'm reading this passage, and I'm reading it, and I'm like, oh yeah, the note, they send a note. And I knew the note read something like, Lord, the one that loves you is ill. That isn't what it says at all, is it? Look at it again. First of all, the length of the note is shocking in and of itself. If I had like one note to save a loved one's life, it ain't going to be short. I'm going I'm to instantly go into their resume. I'm going to start listing their spiritual statistics, their average time in daily prayer. This is life and death. But listen to what they write. John 11, 3 again. We have that? Yeah. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Not the one who loves you. The one you love is sick. The end. This is what Mary and Martha believe. They believe that what will move God most is his love for Lazarus. They know that it is love, Jesus' self-giving love that compels him. So Jesus gets Mary and Martha's message. And so what does he do? He waits two more days down the road, and on the fourth day comes to heal Lazarus. Most people believe that the reason he did this, and I tend to agree, is because the Jews believe that on, by the fourth day there was no hope for resurrection. So the, the custom was by the fourth day it was officially over, they would bury the body. I believe Jesus waited for the fourth day so that they knew that he had the power over life and death. Now something very odd unfolds before Jesus heals Lazarus. He comes down the road. Why is he coming? He's coming to heal Lazarus, right? He knows that. He said that. And when he gets there, what's the first thing he does? It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. If you went to Christian school, you need to memorize one verse. That's the one. (laughs) The first thing he does is he weeps. I remember thinking, you know, maybe I'm not smart enough to understand this, but I'm pretty sure he's, he's coming to heal Lazarus. So why are you wasting this emotion? This is mysterious. If he knows he's going to heal Lazarus, why did he weep? Did he waste his tears? Did Jesus waste his power on nine lepers? Now logically, I'll be honest, I kind of answer like, yeah, maybe. But God doesn't waste anything. So Jesus weeps. Why? 
The message here is God's love is always right now. God's love is always in the present. God doesn't look at the future or the past before he loves. Who is this God who knows he's going to save Lazarus, but before he does has such extraordinary empathy and love for the pain of humanity that he takes the time to cry with Mary and Martha? He knows everything, and yet he'll weep with you now because his love is present, and his love is now, and his love is here, and his love is available. And he gets our plight. He identifies with us. God does not inflict your past on you, and he won't inflict your future on you. He'll love you right now. He'll heal you now, minister to you now, be with you right now. Is he wasting his power on the nine lepers who don't come back and say thank you? Is he wasting these tears on Mary and Martha? No, because there's no end to his love and mercy and compassion. He doesn't have a limited supply. God's love never fails. God's love is faithful. God's love is constant, and God loves you today. You are free to enjoy God today, right now in this moment. Don't get caught up in what's going to happen tomorrow. Certainly don't get caught up in what happened yesterday. Enjoy today. Enjoy God's love today that is present and right now. God is with you. God's for you. God loves you. And I don't know what you're going through. I don't pretend for a moment to understand what you're facing um, and the challenges and the difficulties of your life. But I just sense today that the Holy Spirit is just trying to nudge us to kind of relax. Can I say that in church? Just kind of relax. And just lean into his love today. You know, we're going to be in heaven before we know it. And this life will be over, and we don't have too many days to hope and wish we could go back to the good old days or hope and wish for another day. All we have is today. And we serve a God who loves us today. A God will weep with you today. A God will laugh with you today. God is with you and loves you today. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for revealing to us that your, your love knows no bounds. Help us to grasp the depth of your love that pursues us in our messiness and our brokenness. As we celebrate Christmas, may we not only rejoice in Jesus' birth, but also just reflect on the truth that your self-giving love is at the center of the universe. Help us to live in the present moment, experience your love today, and share it with those around us today. Give us the strength to live out your love in our daily lives. May we be agents of your self-giving love, reaching out to those in need, extending mercy and compassion to those around us. Amen. We're going to finish by singing Silent Night together, okay? Will you stand and join with me as we sing our last Christmas carol? <laughs>